7, verse 2. Perhaps you received a sermon card on the way in this morning. That can be helpful to you for about a third of the year. We're not a slave to this. If the Lord leads differently, we'll indeed take a different text. But we found, have found over the years that the Lord is very timely in laying out ahead of us texts that will matter on any given week and any given season as we face what comes our way. We're amazed, quite frankly, sometimes at how well the text dovetails with what's going on in the world. Even though we don't want to be a slave to the news cycle, the Lord is indeed going ahead of us and proving to us time and again that when we are faithful to prepare texts, that He is faithful to move through His Word by His Spirit to make His people. You might notice by looking on the front side of the card that uh, the title today is Joy Unlikely, and our text is 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 16. I think because it's been a minute since we've been in 2 Corinthians, it might be helpful if we read the first verses of 2 Corinthians to get our moorings. So I'm going to do that before we read our focus text this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning in verse 1 and reading down through verse 7. This is a letter by Paul, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and his apostle associate, Timothy, their brother. So it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. And if I could just pause for a moment and say to you, Timothy and Titus are both associates of the apostles with a big A. Paul, an apostle, as well as the original 12 apostles, You have these apostles that were granted authority to both remember and to write Scripture, the things of Jesus, and to write the things of Jesus. And so Paul is writing with his apostolic authority this letter that comes to us as the second letter to the Corinthians, but it's actually, according to to church history, the fourth letter. And you can derive that from reading 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and realizing that there was a letter before 1 Corinthians that doesn't make it into our canon of Scripture and a letter before 2 Corinthians that doesn't make it into our canon of Scripture. That's going to become abundantly clear. The importance of the figures of Timothy and especially Titus are going to become clear in our focus text today and in the weeks ahead as well. So with that backdrop... Timothy, our brother, to the church, to the church. Now, not an optional extra, but the church, important. The doctrine of the church, important. Right from the, the onset of this letter, it is written to God's people, the church, the church of God that is in Corinth, which with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a standard greeting. And then he gets into verses 3 through 7. And I want to read this because comfort is mentioned Ten times, some version of the word comfort is mentioned ten times in verses 3 through 7. And you're going to notice comfort in our focus passage of Scripture today mentioned six times. So listen for the word comfort in its context. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. When you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share or fellowship in our Comfort. Now turn a page or two forward to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. And we're going to read our text for today. 
And you'll notice in verses 4, 6, 7, and 13, this appearance of this word comfort, which is going to be a key word in this morning's sermon. Chapter 7, verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. Now he's picking up on a theme from ahead, just a little bit up. If you look up at chapter 6, verse 13. In return, I speak to as to children, widen your hearts also. Make room or widen your hearts. So he's picking back up on a theme after the temple of the living God section. And he comes down to chapter 7, verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. Widen your hearts for your leaders is shorthand. Make room in your hearts for us. And he makes a, an apologetic for his faithfulness in ministry to them. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he, comforted, he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. Verse 9, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a, a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Without regret. No regrets. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what, what punishment or justice. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we're comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. May God bless the reading of his word and minister grace and to the hearers. The way that I would like to tackle this text with you this morning is by first looking at verses 2 through 7 
And we're going to see our comfort by the members' physical well-being, especially when they don't seem like they're going to be physically okay. Secondly, comfort by the members' response to the Word of God. That's our main point for the morning. It's right in the middle there. And then thirdly, verses 13 through 16, comfort by the sheer joy of another member's joy being able to rejoice with those who rejoice. So I should say this again because I skipped some verses. Verses 2 through 7, comfort by the well-being of other members, physical well-being of other members. Number 2, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 12, comfort by the members' response to the Word of God. And then number 3, we'll see verses 13 through 16, comfort by the sheer joy of another member, their joy. We rejoice with those who rejoice. So, the first point this morning comes in verses 2 through 7, and what we want to see is comfort by members' physical well-being, especially after we weren't sure they were going to be okay. The obvious way to state this first point is our heart to pray for our fellow believers in the local church when they're physically ill. We do that most every week, don't we? I mean, I'm normally seeing things posted on Facebook, and I love to see social media. It's just a tool. It's morally neutral. It can be used for really bad things. It can be used for really good things. It's kind of like the Romans road, the ancient road. The Romans road can be used to take salvation. It can be used to lead to crucifixion of innocent, fairly innocent people. See? So you could either way. The, the social media is the same way. It can be used for good. It can be used for, for not so good. And I love to see it used in a way to say, hey, would you pray for so-and-so? They're struggling with this. Or... Here's a Bible verse I hope it encourages somebody. I love to see the, that, that when folks use social media in a way that proclaims the name of Christ and protects the other believers and also promotes the maturity of the saints. And that's how we ought to use social media. Now, I believe that we are comforted when we see the physical well-being of other members. At least we should be, as our motives are right in the Lord. What was going on in this text that's underlying and undergirding verses 2 through 7 is the Apostle Paul is terribly concerned that something bad might have happened to Titus. He could have, have had problems on the journey to Corinth. The Corinthians could have mistreated him. The reception of Paul's message to the Corinthians could have been not well received as Titus carried it to the church at Corinth. Remember, there were three letters that preceded this and the third letter, in fact, that Titus carried was a, a rough letter. And so it was rough because they needed to hear it, but more on that in a moment. What happened is, is that Paul winds up parked in Macedonia, and Titus doesn't make it to a rendezvous point in Troas, and so he's really worried about the physical well-being, we think, of Titus. And I think that is, if you, if you hear these verses afresh through that lens, you're going to be able to, to zing, kind of coming out of it, to be able to, to, to feel the zinger of the fact that Paul is concerned for his associate Titus, for another church leader. And he's comforted by the physical well-being of Titus, as well as some other things, as we're going to see. But one, the first thing he's comforted by is the, the members' physical well-being. Listen to verses 2 through 7 again. He implores them, make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've taken advantage of no one. I don't say this to condemn you, for I said before, you're in our hearts to die together, to live together. I mean, it can be a little bit harder to live together, right? <laughs> Living together can be a can be a chore sometimes. You're in our hearts, he says. I'm acting with boldness, great boldness towards you. I have pride in you, he says to the Corinthians. Now he does. I mean, he's, he's, he's had struggles with them. He was worried whether or not they would persevere in the faith. He says, I'm filled with comfort 
In our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. So even though he's, he's personally, physically fatigued and afflicted, facing things from within and without, he's joyous. So it's an unlikely joy. That's how we come up with the title for this morning. T to get through the plot a little bit, listen to verses 5, 6, and 7. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. They were fatigued. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. And I love verse 6. It's a great, great verse for you to memorize. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now, I'll say something about that verse because it's such a rich verse in our text for today. But God, God steps in and He comforts the downcast. Some of your translations may say depressed, the depressed and we're not talking about a kind of, kind of self-absorbed depression. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the late Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great faithful minister in England that died in 1981, who wrote voluminously. He was a medical doctor before he was a preacher, and I recommend almost everything that he wrote and said. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book titled Spiritual Depression, and I think the title gets at it. And when we talk about what was going on with Paul here, he was spiritually depressed. He was downtrodden. And and being downtrodden, he needed to be lifted up, but he wasn't immediately lifted up. He was deeply concerned for the physical well-being of his associate, his friend, his fellow church leader, Titus. Same as at other times he may have been for Timothy. Here he's concerned for Titus. And you can get kind of the, the flow of this by reading what we call the pastoral epistles of the New Testament, First and Second Timothy and Titus. You can understand the nature of the work that they did and helping the early churches establish elders and get off the ground. And you can, you can sense the, the sobriety with which Paul writes about the concern for the well-being of Timothy as well as Titus in those letters. And so that might be a lens you could read those books afresh through. But more to the point here, Paul was deeply concerned and there was no unresolved tension yet. He didn't know if Titus was okay. I mean, he didn't know if he had been mauled on the journey. And God brought comfort to the, the downcast, the spiritually depressed Paul by the coming of Titus. So he was comforted by this particular church leader, this member of the body of Christ, this churchman's physical well-being after thinking he was in danger. If you read Philippians 2, you'll find Epaphras was in some physical unhealth, and the Apostle Paul was deeply concerned for him. So it's, it's not ever as if super-Christians don't have to be concerned with praying for physical healing of others. If you, if you just... If you just are a serious enough believer, then you won't have physical ailments. That's not biblical, and it's not accurate. If that were the case, then we wouldn't die, face the judgment, and live forever with Christ, would we? The fact of the matter is, these bodies are outwardly wasting away, though our very book here says that we're being inwardly renewed. It's that we're not to be conformed to the pattern of the world, but transformed by the renewing not immediately of our bodies, but the renewing of our minds. There is something internally that's being renewed, even though our physical renewal will only occur at the glorification, ultimately. So we are having to be concerned, as we want to see the progress of the gospel in our time. We have to be concerned for the physical well-being of other members, and we ought to pray for them, and we ought not be apologetic for praying for them. And we ought to pray for their physical well-being and laced in with this their very souls, their internal well-being. Pray for those that are spiritually dejected, downcast, depressed. It's not the same as a morbid introspection. Spiritual depression is something that has come about because our focus 
on the rest of the body has weighed us down to the point that we're downtrodden and we can't seem to pull ourselves out of it and we need other members to help us out of it. There is a kind of depression you can help one another out of that is self-focused and self-absorbed, but there is a sin component to that because we aren't called to be self-absorbed now, are we? We're called to be focused on the other believers. And sometimes the best medicine we can give somebody is repent of focusing strictly on your own selfish needs. Everything's about me. And take the blinders off and look at, look at these needs that can be met. Do you have extra income? Somebody needs money. Do you have extra time? Somebody needs served. Do you have extra ability? Somebody doesn't have your expertise. Like, don't be, don't, don't be a, a grumpy. Look and see. And serve. And serve others. And what you'll find is, is that one aspect of being downtrodden will be removed because you won't be strictly doing this. Now, though, there is a kind of spiritual depression that you can be serving others and just get flat out worn out. I'm thinking of Elijah in the Scripture. He's fought these massive battles. And 1 Kings 19 tells us that he winds up sitting down under a tree and saying, I'm done. He's just worn out. And do you know what the text tells us in 1 Kings 19, 18? Well, you know what the text tells us God used to encourage Elijah? I'll tell you. He had a vision of 7,000 faithful believers that refused, like him, that refused to bow the knee to Baal. And the Lord's means to encourage him was the fairly physical well-being of those 7,000 and certainly the spiritual well-being of those 7,000. Elijah, you feel alone and you look immediately around you and you look like you're alone, but there's a great congregation of my people that are out there, as dispersed as they are. And I'm giving you a vision of them gathered together. And isn't it true that we get a vision of God's people gathered together every time we come together on Sunday morning? And ought not that level of physical well-being enough for you to just sit in that pew? Ought not that be some encouragement for the spiritual downtrodden? Amen? It is to me to see you. This isn't a guaranteed thing. We are going to waste away and meet Jesus. That's going to happen. The fact that we get to progress the gospel now, that we have a little bit of time and a little bit of relative health to do it, should encourage us. Paul was concerned for the physical well-being of Titus, and he was elated when Titus came to him and when they could rendezvous in Macedonia, not Troas, but when they finally got together, he was elated, and we ought to be encouraged by the physical well-being of other believers as well. And we ought to pray for the physical well-being of other believers whenever someone is physically ill, and we should find comfort for our weary souls as God uses other people in the faith to help us out of our funk. Number two, comfort by members' response to the Word of God. Comfort by members' response to the Word of God. I read verse 6 and told you you should memorize it. It says, But God who comforts the downcast comfort us by the coming of Titus. And it leads into verse 8, so I'll read verse 7. And not only by Titus' coming, but also the comfort with which he was comforted by you. Talking about the Corinthians, the Corinthian faithful. The church at Corinthians, those within the church that were faithful. And he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. So this bridges to our second point, which is going to be comprised of verses 8 through 12, where the Apostle Paul is saying that we can be comforted by other people's response to the Word of God. When someone is, is confronted with the truth of the Word of God, rightly interpreted, rightly applied, 
and proposed that certain action be taken in, a, in your life because of what the clear teaching of the Word of God says, when someone is confronted with that, there is not a guarantee. I, we don't get the privilege. God doesn't give us a crystal ball to say, if you're just persuasive enough, then that lady is going to respond positively to your teaching in the Word. Or if, if you're just zealous enough, then that fellow is going to hear what you say and he's going to do what you say. That's not an assurance that we get. And yet, as ambassadors for Christ, we are to be a part of the relationships in the church and the reciprocity toward other members, as well as between church leaders and other members. We're supposed to be a part of this reciprocal relationship where we know what's going on with one another well enough that if we get way off into left field, that we should say, hey, hey, uh, sister, the Word says this, and I'm seeing that, and you need to be here. Or, brother, the Word says this, and I'm seeing that, and you need to be here. And that's a kind of reciprocal relationship that just doesn't come top down. We read in the Scriptures that Peter calls himself a fellow elder, and as a fellow elder, he was rebuked by Paul, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Jonas, Brother Jonas has covered this in one of his sermons not too long ago, Galatians 2, 11 through 14. And Paul rebuked Peter, certainly apostle to apostle, but also fellow elder to fellow elder. Peter understood himself to be an elder in the church, a church leader, the same parlance that we use in church today. And with regard to Peter being rebuked, we carry that precedent over into the way that Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, 22 and 23, describes the kind of corrective, loving correction that comes the way of an elder when they step way out of line from the Word of God. It says that that particular brother is to be rebuked publicly in the church, publicly, probably because his installation was public, and so he has to be rebuked publicly, 1 Timothy 5, 22 and 23. So I bring that up in the context of this second point in the sermon because what I want you to understand is, is that none of us sit on the throne from on high and are absolved of the need to be corrected by the Word of God over the course of our lives. No perfect people need apply for membership in the church. Also, though, no stubborn people need apply. No stubborn people need apply because here's the thing. You aren't too good to be corrected by God, and I'm not too good to be corrected by God. You understand? This is a co-op for such things. That is the litmus test for membership in the body of Christ. It is rank submission to the God who is, and an awareness that repentance will not be something that I simply check off my list of things to do at my moment of conversion, but it will be a journey of depth that carries me into kingdom come. I will need to be a repentant person all the days of my life until I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Don't you understand? So the Apostle Paul, in our second point here, he is comforted by the members' response to the clear teaching of the Word of God when he was quite unsure how they would respond. Listen to verses 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 for the meat of this sermon. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, remember he was writing Scripture, now we're teaching Scripture. There's a distinction there. But the authority of the letter is no different. And here's what it says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, Paul says, I don't regret it. And, and then almost as if he's letting us in on his mental thinking here a little bit, and as God's letting us see this, 
I did regret it, though, for, for a little bit, only for a little while. In other words, like, I wrote it. I meant it. I was so worried because I, I, I didn't know if you were going to respond repentantly to the clear, to the clear teaching of God. And, and so I did kind of regret it because I didn't want you to hurt. And that's always the case with a faithful church leader especially if that church leader has to carry a heavy word. It's always the case for a faithful church leader. Now, an unfaithful church leader, maybe not, but for a faithful church leader, I'm telling you, it's always the case that to carry the clear teaching of the Word of God to somebody, not knowing how they're going to respond, knowing this can end, at least for now, badly, is an incredibly hard, emotional thing to do. Just the same as it is for you. If you carry the clear teaching of the Word of God to your brother or sister member in the church, you don't have a crystal ball. You don't know for sure how they're going to respond to that. We want to create a culture where spiritual fruit can grow. And so we want to make sure that we're talking about these things as it comes up in the Word of God. We want to make sure that we're modeling these things. But the fact of the matter is, even in a church with a culture where spiritual fruit is ripe to grow... Wheat grows up with tares. The pursuit of a regenerate church membership is just that. It is a pursuit. And as worthy of a pursuit as it is, it is a pursuit. Meaning, there will be people in the church that actually refuse to repent when facing irrefutably clear evidence of a clear teaching of the Word of God. Some of them will refuse to repent for a short time and then be found to be in faith. Some of them will refuse to repent for their entire life and be found not to be in faith. Repentance is not your faith. But repentance is a fruit of the faith. It's a twinning with the faith. It's the other side of the coin of faith. Because by virtue of the fact that you declare faith in the God who is, what you are saying effectively is, I get salvation from you. I couldn't save myself. I get knowledge for all time from you. I couldn't know it myself. I get special revelation from your word. I couldn't figure it out myself. And we are admitting at the moment of conversion our need to repent because we have to necessarily turn away from our sin and turn to the God who is. And your need for that repentance does not stop at your moment of conversion. In fact, it is just the first installment in a lifetime of needed repentance because you are not perfectly sanctified until you meet Jesus. Don't you see? Now, there's all kinds of ways this can go bad, but I don't really want to go there. It's good to have a culture where one another has a green light to examine the Word of God, interpret the Word of God, apply the Word of God, and if through time and compounding someone doesn't seem to be in step with the clear teaching of the Word of God, to come to that person and say, hey, listen, hey, listen, hey, listen. And that seems to be exactly what has happened here and exactly what the Apostle Paul is comforted by. In this instance, some of the members of the church at Corinth responded to the Word of God in the affirmative. And where they needed to correct their behavior, they did. Where they needed to confess they didn't agree with the behavior of the troubled peoples or persons, the, the particular sexual sinners that were outlined in 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2, they did. And he's confident in them because of their repentance when faced with the evidence of the Word of God. Now, I can find it here. I'm going to read you something that I didn't write, but I, I heard it in December and I thought it was so helpful. I just wanted to bring it to you. Good luck if I find it. It's written by a guy by the name of uh, Barry Cooper. Barry has a podcast from Ligonier Ministries that I would really suggest that you listen to. It's really good stuff. Um, and he, has, he just has different one-word topics that he goes through. 
And one of them was uh, repentance for that Simply Put podcast. And here's part of what he said. He said, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which literally means to change one's mind. But it's not a fickle thing, the way we might change our mind on something, then change it back again. It's a transformation of outlook. It's an entirely new way of seeing. Biblically speaking, true repentance can only come about as a result of the inner work of the Holy Spirit. And it's crucial to see repentance isn't the cause of salvation. Repentance is the fruit of salvation. Repentance isn't the cause of salvation, it's the fruit of it. When the Spirit brings us faith in Christ, He convicts us of our sin, and the fruit of that conviction is repentance. Repentance, then, shows that our faith in Christ is genuine. We turn around. We go in the opposite direction like Zacchaeus in the parable. You might remember Zacchaeus repented and believed. And so we turn and go a different way like Zacchaeus. Not just because we hate our sin, but also because we love our Lord. At the same time as we turn away from our sin in disgust, we're turning toward Him in love and worship. And just to be clear, Cooper says, repentance isn't a one-shot deal. It's not something we do once at the beginning of our Christian lives and then move on. It's a daily discipline, a way of life. Like Martin Luther said, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when He said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. We're never so free of sin that we can be free of repentance. Very well said, isn't it? He goes on to say it this way. But repentance isn't meant to keep us in a place of shame or hopelessness. Consider the Lord's words in Mark chapter 1, where He calls people to repent and believe the gospel. He holds the two tightly together, repent and believe, that is. Our repentance is a channel through which we get to experience, once again, the wonder of the good news of Christ's irrevocable love for us. As the author of the Institutes of the Christian Religion wrote, Those who are truly religious experience what sort of punishments are shame, confusion, groaning, displeasure with self, and other emotions that arise out of a lively recognition of sin. Yet we must remember to exercise restraint, lest sorrow engulf us, for nothing more readily happens to fearful consciences than falling into despair. And whomever Satan sees overwhelmed by the fear of God, he more and more submerges in that deeper whirlpool of sorrow that they may never rise again. And this way we flee from God who calls us to Himself through repentance. So repentance can be thought of as a gateway, on the other side of which is our loving Father, Jesus' parable, the prodigal son, shows what this is like. The prodigal, when he realizes how he has sinned against the father, turns back from the far country, repents from the far country in which he had been living, and heads home. And that's repentance, a turning to God. And just like the father of the prodigal son, God runs to meet us joyfully in that moment, embracing us, kissing us, celebrating with us. What if we ourselves have become aware that we need to repent of something? then let's waste no time and let's turn back from that far country. If we've been sinned against by someone else in some way with our words or actions, we should express our remorse to that person. I'm sorry, if we've sinned against someone else in some way with our words or actions, then you or I should express our remorse to that person and ask for forgiveness. As well as honoring Christ and restoring a deeper intimacy with the Father, that act of repentance has the power to bring deep healing to the person we've sinned against and also deep healing to us, simply put by Barry Cooper, listen to the words of 2 Corinthians. Same concept. It says in verse 8, 
For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you for only a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. You see what a gateway that is to renewed fellowship with God and His people. Repenting. The Bible describes it as refreshing. We read that text earlier from Acts 3. Refreshing is what repenting brings. It's like a, a cold drink of water going down your esophagus on a hot day. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10 delineates between godly grief and worldly grief. Just because we have grief does not mean that it is coming in a manner that is spiritual. For godly grief produces repentance. There's a litmus test for godly grief that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And we know this because the Bible says that sin, when it's full grown, ends in death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. Eternal death. And then he says in verses 11 and 12, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Look what it's done. It's produced an eagerness, an earnestness, it says. An earnestness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing. He describes their emotions as they work through the process of effective church discipline and of effective purifying of the church. And he says here, what punishment or what justice. At every point you prove yourself innocent. Legal terminology. Innocent. Not accomplice to sin. Not complicit in it, but lovingly rebuking characteristically known unrepentant sin patterns and seeking that a little leaven doesn't leaven the whole lump. And that painfulness of the church leaders finds refreshing when members respond in kind to loving rebuke. They're comforted by members' responses to the clear teaching of the Word of God. And it says finally in verse 12, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in God's sight, in the sight of God. It's for an assurance of salvation. There's a comfort that comes when we're faced with the Word of God and we respond to it. Now, I want to read to you a, a passage from a book by the Prince of Preachers, as he was called, Charles Spurgeon. He was a pastor in the 1800s in Victoria-era England. And in his book, which one of our members loaned to me, his book titled, The Greatest Fight in the World, he says this on page 20, We should resolve also that we will quote more of Holy Scripture. And he's talking to, to preachers. He says, sermons should be full of Bible, sweetened, strengthened, sanctified with Bible essence. The kind of sermons that people need to hear are outgrowths of Scripture. If they do not love to hear them, there is all the more reason why they should be preached to them. The gospel has the singular faculty of creating a taste for itself. Bible hearers, when they hear indeed, come to be Bible lovers. It's beautiful, isn't it? Spurgeon goes on to say, The mere stringing of texts together is a poor way of making sermons, though some have tried it, and I doubt God has blessed them since they did their best. It is far better to string texts together than to pour out one's own poor thoughts in a washy flood. There will be at least something to be thought of and remembered if the Holy Word is quoted, and in other case, there may be nothing whatever. Texts of Scripture need not, however, be strung together. They may be fitly brought to in to give edge and point to a discourse. They will be the force of the sermon. Our own words are mere paper pellets compared with the rifle shot of the word. The scripture is no conclusion of the whole matter. There is no arguing. The scripture is the conclusion of the whole matter. There is no arguing after we find that it is written. We need more scripture bearing on our lives, calling us to repentance, accentuating our faith, not less. Spurgeon 
was right. So first, we're comforted when we see members amongst us. They're okay after we wondered if they would be. We're comforted, number two, when members respond in repentance to the Word of God. We need more of that, not less. And it's for all of us, not just for some of us. It's for the leaders, too. We all need to be nurturing the habit of repentance. And then finally, we are comforted, verses 13 through 16 says, by the sheer joy of the joy of other members. This may sound easy, but it's not. It can be difficult to rejoice with those who rejoice. If the first point mirrors that statement from Romans, we should mourn with those who mourn, then our last point mirrors the statement in the same verse, we ought rejoice with those who rejoice. The fruit of the Spirit growing up in us and coming out is typified in no small way by our ability to celebrate the successes of others. We want to see others do well. We want to see them grow. Do you have the heart to see others do well? Are you willing to lift a finger, to be fatigued, to be inconvenienced, to see others do well? Do you mourn at the prospect that maybe someone might respond faithfully to the Word of God? Do you care for other people and not just yourself with regard to faith? Does it matter to you? Do you have the heart of a teacher to help someone else get it one to another? That's what spiritual fruit looks like in a church is the comfort that we have by the joy for someone else's joy. Listen to how it's stated in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 13 through 16. And our third and final point. Therefore we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus. Rejoice at Titus's joy. Because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. The church at Corinth refreshed Titus. Took him a while to meet to meet back up with Paul, actually. Verse 14. For whatever boasts I made to Titus about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater. Look at the reciprocal relationship between the leaders and the members. Look at his affection for the members at, at Corinth that responded this way to the word. His affection for them is greater as he remembers the obedience. You don't need to repent when you're obedient, right? Or it's obedient to repent. Then I'm obedient. I've turned back to the way that I turned to. He remembers the obedience of you all, all the members at Corinth, how you receive Titus with fear and trembling. That's how we respond to the Word of God, with fear and trembling. We see it as an extension of his, his very expression to us. All the theophanies in the Bible were accompanied, or God's sightings in the Bible accompanied with fear and trembling. They were scared to death on the Mount of Transfiguration, for example. How you received him with fear and trembling. Finally, verse 16, Paul can say, I rejoice. You see this unlikely joy, this joy unspeakable and full of glory, as the old song says. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. An amazing statement that we should pick up on in the future. But to stay with the thrust of this third and final point and this theme of comfort, it's, he's comforted not only by the physical well-being of Titus, He's comforted not only by the spiritual responses of repentance of the people, but his spiritual depression is overcome in no small part because he can celebrate with a celebrating Titus. Can you celebrate with others who are filled with joy? Being refreshed by repentance and being refreshed by the joy that comes from spiritual people that can celebrate spiritual things. This reciprocal relationship is hard to obey without the local church and her members. 
It is difficult to obey this reciprocal relationship and to live in this community if, it's, if, we are, if, our, if our practices are antithetical to the gathered out assembly, which is what the church means. And so we can have this reception of the word and be confident in the other members and have assurances that leads to greater joy as we learn to rejoice with those who rejoice. The truth is what this was built on. What he said was true. Their boasting before Titus had proved true because the things that they were focused on was steeped in the truth. So finally, we have this comfort because God comforts the downcast. I want to end with quoting a common phrase in our culture that I think is actually not correct. They say, you know, time heals all pain, right? That's a common saying in our culture. I don't think that's true. I don't think it's beautiful or good either. If time healed all wounds, then universalism would have to be true. Every person in time would become a believer and be in heaven. But that's not what God says now, is it? Every person, in fact, won't be in heaven. Only people who pass through that narrow gate of faith in Christ will be in heaven. So it isn't true that time heals all wounds. The Bible says that it's by Christ's wounds that we're healed. And I guess if we were going to pick up on a word downstream from faith, it would be not that time heals all wounds, but that repentance heals all wounds. You see, glossing over wrongs, even four decades later, still hurts. I was talking to an old friend over the holidays. My friend told me about the pain of almost four decades later. It's still still a factor in his family's fear because sometimes broken families stay broken. And sometimes time doesn't heal a thing. Time is not the healer of pain. God is. And the right response to God's healing touch is repentance. If you've done wrong in the past, if you've performed actions that have adversely affected other people, that are not sanctioned by God, but rather condemned by God, I have to ask you, even if it's four or five decades later, have you repented for your wrongdoings? I'm not asking if you've let time go by. I'm asking if you've repented because refreshing doesn't come to your family without repentance. Hear me. Time doesn't heal you. Repentance does. Time can cause us to lessen our convictions that might should be held. We lessen them just to get along in the world. Time near pain can cause us to dig in emotionally and not simply not fully separate fact from fiction. However well-intentioned the adage, time heals all pain, it simply is not accurate. Time might weaken our nerve endings to feel pain acutely, but it doesn't heal us, doesn't forgive every wrong. If time were all it took, like I said, every person would wind up in heaven. The couplet with belief that marks the children of God is repentance. That is how we find godly comfort is through the faith that is marked by repentance. And I want, I'm emotionally invested in your repentance. We are comforted when you repent. We're comforted. Not when you hide and not when you ball up like a snake and you're defiant. We're comforted when you repent. That's the project, folks. Colossians 1.28 says that 
what church leaders are to strive for is to present you mature in Christ, both warning you and teaching you about all the things of God as we proclaim Christ. To present you mature, that means that we have to have as our habit repentance because by nature we're still sinners, right? I pray that for you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we ponder these things, I invite our ushers to come.